Now the priests brought the ark of God to the temple and set it in place. And that's called the most holy place. This is something that happened in 1 Kings chapter 8. And in five minutes, we're going to be studying that. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Rod Hembry. And I'm Janice. And this is Bible Discovery TV, in which we study the Bible. And as we look at it, we discover some very interesting things. Now, in 20 minutes time, Corey is coming up with Ryan. Corey? I am going to be taking a look at the bread of the presence today. Ryan? Well, today we read about the Queen of Sheba's visit to King Solomon, but just who was she? Well, my segment today presents one possibility. Queen of Sheba, that's really interesting. Okay, Janice? My segment's called God's Presence. And that's coming up in about 25 minutes time, so we've got a lot for you in this next half hour. So let's make sure we open up our Bible guides and look at the Bible. The Bible's the most important book of all and hear what God is saying. First Kings 8, 1 through 11. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion. Therefore all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came, and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. The priests and the Levites brought them up. Also King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel who were assembled with him were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be counted or numbered for multitude. Then the priests brought in the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place, into the inner sanctuary of the temple, to the most holy place, under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their two wings over the place of the Ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the Ark and its poles. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. And it came to pass, when the priests came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. First Kings chapter eight, chapter nine, and chapter 10. Boy, we go fast through the Bible, don't we? But today we're gonna stop, look at 11 verses here from first Kings eight. First Kings eight, nine, and 10. The ancient Israelites did not take the presence of God lightly. When they wandered in the wilderness before settling in the promised land, 
they experienced the presence of God at Mount Sinai, and it scared them. Now, God allowed them to see the manifestation of his presence in physical form. They knew he was real, and he was there. Later, when David tried to move the Ark of the Covenant, the symbolic meeting place between God and the high priest, a man had died from touching the Ark. The presence of God was real, and the presence of God was holy. The Ark of the Covenant was intensely important. It was a decorative box covered with gold that was made to hold the tablets of the law and a few other remembrances from the times just after the Exodus. The Ark's lid had two golden cherubim angels on it, and the presence of God would meet with the high priest from above the cherubim. Now, 1 Kings chapter 8 describes the Ark's placement in the innermost sanctuary of the temple. It represented God's presence in the temple, which is what made the Ark of the Temple, made the Ark in the temple legitimate. Now, this is absolutely fascinating, beloved. I, I just want to tell you, as we study this today, we're going to talk about moving the Ark of God. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Take your Bible guide, turn to it today, because this is important. Now, this is a guide, and each day has a page on it, and all of that, and they're titled, and everything else. And uh, there's 40 pages, plus pages here. And also, Ryan and Corey's pieces are in here. Two of their pieces are in there. It's very important, but the idea is to teach us how to hear God's Word, to listen to the Bible. And there's one for every month, so we want to encourage you to write or call or go to BibleDiscoveryTV.com. Click on it. It'll take you to a donate page. Thank you so much for your donation. Whatever it is is whatever it is. And you can download it exactly how we printed it. That becomes very important. But today, let's pray. Father, I pray in the name of your Son, your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, that you would help us to hear the Holy Spirit as you speak to us through your word. Teach us your ways and show us your path, Lord, as we focus on this. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' wonderful name, and we all said together, amen. First Kings chapter 8. This is amazing, isn't it? Verse 1. Now Solomon assembled the elders of Israel and all the heads of the tribes, the chief fathers of the children of Israel, to King Solomon in Jerusalem, that they might bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the city of David, which is Zion, which is where it was. Therefore, all the men of Israel assembled with King Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. So all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. Then they brought up the ark of the Lord, the tabernacle of meeting, and all of the holy furnishings that were in the tabernacle. And the priests and the Levites brought them up, also King Solomon and all of the congregation of Israel, who were assembled with him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that they could not, they could not be counted or numbered for the multitude. Stunning. Stunning, beloved. The priests brought the ark of the temple and set it in place called the most holy place. Now, beloved, there are unique times when God's presence is strong and powerful to us. 
There are unique times when God's presence is strong and powerful to us. But those are unique times. This is one of them. Recently, we saw a revival take place in Kentucky, but that's just a time. And then God goes further and spreads out. We see this. The church was born. The Holy Spirit came in Acts 2. And then all of a sudden the church was persecuted and the people went out. So this is part of what the Holy Spirit does to spread his word out there. Very important. So this was that time. Now let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 6. Then the priest brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place into the inner sanctuary of the temple to the most holy place under the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread their wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. Listen to this now, verse 8. The poles extended so that the ends of the poles could be seen from the holy place in front of the inner sanctuary. But they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. Do you get that? The poles were so long that their ends were seen from the holy place in front of the sanctuary. I just believe this is a physical representation that you cannot confine the Holy Spirit of God. Look, you, you can't. Holy Spirit of God is breaking out. Do you remember what happened in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and the resurrection? It said the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Veil of the temple? All heaven was breaking loose. Isn't that amazing? So we need to keep that in mind and, and hear that because this is important. Let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. Let's look at verse 9. Nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone which Moses put there at Horeb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt and it came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. Okay, so I need you to get this. The cloud filled the house of the Lord. I mean, God was there. Verse 11, so that the priest could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What does that mean? Well, very simply put, when the ark was set in place, God's glorious presence filled the temple. Beloved, listen carefully. We should invite God's Holy Spirit to fill our hearts and take control as we follow the Lord. I, I, I just need to tell you that people... Today, I mean, the, the going to a revival, that's great, praise God, but that's only the first part of it. As the revival continues to spread out, it's not that we meet in churches and have great services. I mean, that's part, part of it, maybe. The big part of it is that the Holy Spirit comes out of our lives and people see it because we are changed. That's how the Holy Spirit works, beloved. We start with the presence of God. God fills us and then we go out and we live differently. We become different people. Very important. So today, beloved, I pray that God, Father, I pray today that you would be in our hearts and help us to live this out. 
front of our friends and in front of people who don't know you. And I pray today that they would see you and give their lives to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This character of King Saul, this historical figure. Now, I think it's probably fair to say that most of us, uh, when we think of King Saul, we think of the bad guy foil to King David. But an entire book of the Bible is also dedicated to mostly his reign. Of course, that's 1 Samuel. So I'm really excited to jump into it today and see what we can learn about Saul. All right, well, today's reading talks about the dedication of Solomon's temple. So he's finally built it, he's brought everything in, and now it's time to dedicate, dedicate and consecrate the temple so that regular worship can begin in Jerusalem. Now, a part of that regular worship is something called the bread of the presence. Now, we read about this back in Exodus, but Solomon adds a little bit of his own unique spin to the bread of the presence. Take a look. A key element of Israelite worship was the bread of the presence. It was considered one of the three holiest regular actions in Israelite worship. These three holy actions all took place in the sanctuary of the tabernacle and temple, the area closest to the Holy of Holies, and were carried out by the high priest exclusively. These were the lighting of the golden lampstand, the burning of incense on the golden altar, and the replacement of the bread of the presence on the golden table. All these actions represented parts of the covenant that God had with Israel. The bread of the presence symbolized God's provision toward Israel. It was also connected with the Sabbath as a perpetual ordinance. On the Sabbath, the priests switched out the bread of the presence. The week-old bread was then consumed by the priests in the sanctuary, as it had been made holy by being in the presence of God. It's also connected to the manna, or bread from heaven, that God provided for Israel during their time in the wilderness after the Exodus. In Leviticus chapter 24, we learn that each loaf of bread was to be made with two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour. This is the same amount of manna that the Israelites were to collect per person in preparation for their Sabbath in the wilderness. The measurement works out to be around 7 pounds, or 3.2 kilograms, per loaf. The bread of the presence consisted of 12 loaves arranged in two piles of six on top of the golden table. The loaves are also called the bread of the piles, the continual or regular bread, and holy bread. Their number seems to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, whose provision is always before the face of God. So entrenched was the symbolism of the bread with the provision of God that it later became a saying in Jewish tradition that if one wanted material blessing, they should point their feet north when they prayed. The table of bread was oriented on the north side of the sanctuary. In First Chronicles, we learn that the Kohathite family of Levitical priests were tasked with the special service of baking the bread of the presence. Its shape, recipe, and arrangement became quite the center of later tradition. While most modern representations of the table of showbread are rather straightforward, a table with a golden rim around its top, modern Judaism has kept the tradition that the loaves were separated by golden reeds or rods adding support to the unleavened bread. These are envisioned and depicted as movable shelves. To the table built during Moses' lifetime, the Bible tells that King Solomon added ten more to his Jerusalem temple. 
Ezra may also have had to remake a golden table after the Babylonian exile, and the apocryphal book of 1 Maccabees tells us that Simon Maccabee also had to make a new table after it was taken by an enemy king. Finally, the history of the table of showbread ends with its depiction on the Ark of Titus being carried off to Rome as booty after the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70. So it's not known how many of these tables survived or if any of these tables survived through the Babylonian captivity. But regardless, when the temple was rebuilt during the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, another table either was brought, a table was either brought back from Babylon or one was made because the temple service was instituted. Uh, you know, the apocryphal book of First Maccabees, it records that the bread of the presence was stolen by an enemy king. Uh, and but then the, the temple continues on in its history. So uh, another one was built by Simon Maccabee. And by the time we get to the days of Christ and Herod the Great, uh, that, that new table for the bread of the presence is functioning in the temple in Jerusalem. So lots of history when it comes to the bread of the presence uh, and even its table <laughs> that it was housed on. I think it's important to remember that the history when Jesus Christ was there in the New Testament times, the history is lengthy. Like for example, oh, King yeah. David, what, that was a thousand years yeah. before that King David did all those things. I mean, you know, we talk about the United States of America or Canada, we're only talking a couple hundred years. I mean, that's mm -hmm. nothing compared to the history that's there. So it's mm -hmm. very, very interesting. Thank you, Corey. Right? All right. Well, today my segment centers around 1 Kings chapter 10, which records that the Queen of Sheba visited King Solomon. Now, the Bible only refers to her as the Queen of Sheba or the Queen of the South. So we don't have a name, and so we don't know who she really was. But there are different theories, and my segment today just represents one of those theories. Check it out. Soon after Solomon was appointed king of Israel, God blessed him with such great wisdom and prosperity that he became world-renowned. Even the famous but mysterious historical figure, known to us only as the Queen of Sheba or the Queen of the South, came to witness Solomon's greatness firsthand. While her name and the location of her kingdom isn't known, most biblical scholars believe Sheba was located in southwestern Arabia, which is modern-day Yemen. Interestingly, this conclusion flies in the face of the Jewish Roman historian Josephus, who claimed that this queen was the ruler of Egypt and Ethiopia. While most Christian scholars think Josephus was mistaken, there are a few who accept his record. Two such scholars are John Ashton and David Down. As a matter of fact, using a revised and shortened Egyptian chronology based upon the Bible and other historical and archaeological markers, they argue in their book, Unwrapping the Pharaohs, that the Queen of Sheba was none other than the famous female pharaoh, Hatshepsut. Several reasons bring them to this conclusion. First, Jesus refers to the Queen of Sheba as the Queen of the South in Matthew 12.42. And since the Bible often refers to Egypt as the land of the South, even referring to Egyptian kings as kings of the South, it is logically possible to identify the Queen of the South with the Queen of Egypt. They also point out that the key historical event in the lives of both queens is their expedition to a distant land. Just as the Queen of Sheba is known for her great expedition to Israel, so too is Hatshepsut known for her expedition to the land of Punt. 
While nobody really knows where Punt was, in her inscriptions she refers to it as God's land, saying that it was a beautiful land, a fitting reference to the land of Israel at that time. Egyptian inscriptions also apparently refer to Punt being in Israel. But one problem with this idea is that the flora and fauna depicted in Hatshepsut's expedition have been identified as coming from Africa, not Israel. However, it is possible that the flora that she brought back could have been imported by Solomon from Africa. Solomon was an avid gardener and zoologist and had imported trees and apes from Africa. Lastly, if the Queen of Sheba really was Hatshepsut, then there may have been another incentive for her to make the long trek. Hatshepsut had a sister named Neferbiti, but because nothing more is heard of Neferbiti, scholars assume that she died prematurely. But it is possible that she was the daughter of Pharaoh, whom Solomon married. She then may have been the bride in the song that was sung at Solomon's wedding. She describes herself as being dark but lovely, and Solomon addressed her as Mythili among Pharaoh's chariots. In that case, Hatshepsut would have been visiting her sister. So as I said before in the segment, nobody really knows for sure who the Queen of Sheba was, but I wanted to present you this theory because it's not really well known about, and it could be right or it could be wrong, but it's really good to be aware of it in any case. Now that said, if you want to rewatch this video or see my other videos, then head on over to my YouTube channel, which is just my name, Ryan Hembry, because there's lots of content there and often there's more to the segments on YouTube because there aren't any time constraints there. And if you want, you can also subscribe to my weekly blog on our website, which is BibleDiscoveryTV.com. When you subscribe, you'll get articles from me delivered right into your email every Tuesday. So check it out. I think that's uh, very important to remember. Um, the channels, your channel, Corey's channel, and, and our channel, Pastor Rod Hembry at uh, YouTube, and then Corey Babetchko at YouTube, and I'm Ryan Hembry at YouTube. Those are very important to keep an eye on and watch. So thank you, Ryan. Mm. Very good. Cor or Janice. <laughs> this is Corey. That's Corey. That is my name. Yeah, Janice. That's right. Some days I feel like I need to wear a name tag and turn it upside down so that I remember who I am. Just saying that it happens. It happens. But today we're talking about 1 Kings chapter 8, and I call it God's presence because we see here how that the ark is brought into the temple. And there's quite a ceremony and, and, and quite a, an arrangement um, a, an order in which everything was brought back in and exactly where it was placed and what it was done. And Solomon's father, King David, if you'll remember back in 2 Samuel, we read how that he learned the very hard way um, how not to move the ark of God. And so we see here now the ark the ark being brought back into the temple. And the key verses that I wanted to look at is uh, 10 and 11. It says here, and it came to pass when the priests came out of the holy place, so the ark is in place now, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priests could not continue ministering because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now this temple was to be God's dwelling place despite the fact that neither earth nor heaven can contain God, but this was where his name would dwell. The presence of his name would dwell. And this is what we invite, this indwelling of God's Holy Spirit when we commit our lives, when we ask the Lord for forgiveness of our sins, when we make that commitment in our heart 
when we truthfully and honestly make that commitment to turn from our ways and turn to God and his ways, then we are filled with God's presence and he dwells within us and helps to teach us when we come to his word, when we come to him in prayer, and we must follow him with our lives every day. God is a God of order. He is a God of order and God's presence in our lives, as it did here, the glory of the Lord filled that place so that they even had to, 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 to come out. They had to get out of there right now. God's presence in our lives bring about a change. We are a work in progress. If we continue on with the Lord, if we follow him, there are going to be things that we will see within ourselves when we come to God in prayer, when we come to God's word that we see we have not been doing correctly. We have not been following well. And instead of coming and saying, well, let me see if I can find another verse that can justify that behavior. Or maybe if I take this verse and turn it around a little bit and read it upside down, I can make it fit into my life. Instead of coming at the word of God that way, we need to come to the word of God so that we can learn from it, so that we can seek after God so that he can begin to change us. I think it's important to remember that we read the Bible to change our hearts. Mm -hmm. We don't try to change the Bible by reading into it. I think that's really critical what you're saying. Again, and, and I'm going to say this a couple of times because it's important. Revivals are great and they're awesome. Praise God for revivals. But it's a beginning point. Revival is coming back to God. When you come back to God, the first thing you do is get into the Bible and you begin to learn what he said and learn how it should change you. So when people come to the Lord and they have a revival, their lives are changed forever. Not just for you know two years or one year, it, it's changed forever. And that becomes very important. So when we see things happening, we need to pay attention and make sure that it's the word of God going into their hearts. So that's really what we need to do. God really is the author and the finisher yes. of our faith. Absolutely. We need to recognize him as that. He's not somebody that can come to just fulfill the things that we want. No. Um, our desires begin to change when we grow closer with God. That's what's key. Continue promoting BibleDiscoveryTV.com because you can watch this program there anytime you want. And also other programs we have available. One of them is Beyond the Call. Beyond the Call is a new program that we're just putting together and uh, we've got several of them done. And it's Testimonies of Jesus Christ. When did Jesus Christ become more than just a name to people? It's great. Anyway, let's pray today. Lord, holy is your name. Spirit of the living God, come into my heart and let me show people who you are. 